0: Channing and I'm Elise and this is the Faithful Feminists Podcast. We focus on feminist interpretation of scriptures and follow the LDS Come Follow Me manual as a guide for study. We understand scriptures can be a tricky endeavor for readers, but we also believe sacred texts contain compelling examples of loving and liberating relationships with the divine, others, and ourselves. We hope you'll join us in exploring the problems and promises of sacred texts with imagination, critique, and celebration to reveal what we feel is the loving and liberating heart of Scripture. While Mormonism, with its iconic floral
1: foyer couches, is our background, we follow our faith and our God on the winding path of spirituality over institution and connection over condemnation. We are fellow wanderers, weavers, and doubters. If you found yourself feeling a little too faithful for some and not enough for others, welcome. We've saved you a seat on the soft chairs. This podcast is funded by our listeners' generous donations. If you'd like to support our work, connect with us on Patreon or on our website at www.thefaithfulfeminist.com. Hello, friends, and welcome back to the podcast. In this week's episode, we'll be covering Isaiah chapters 58 through 66 for the dates October 3rd through the 9th. This is our last week in the book of Isaiah, and the Come, Follow Me manual has us focusing on fasting, Jesus Christ, and the second coming. But we're going to dive into the chapters and see what else we can kind of pull from there. But before we do that, really quick, we just want to mention, like, We hope that you survived General Conference weekend and, um, took really good care of yourself, and continue to take really good care of yourself throughout the next couple weeks as we experience whatever fallout comes. We're recording this episode on Sunday morning, so who knows what's going to happen in the next 12 hours, Um, but we just want you to know that we love you, we care about you, and we've been thinking about you as we move through this general conference weekend. So hopefully, um, as the weeks go on, we can just continue to dive into the text and find what goodness is waiting there for us.
0: If we go ahead and start in chapter 58, which is the first chapter assigned for this section, we are looking at a chapter that's really a nice critique of hypocrisy and worship. In this chapter, the people are saying things to God like, God, why aren't you paying attention to us? We're like doing all of this great fasting stuff and you are not responding. And God says, you're not actually fasting for me. You're fasting for your own selves. And so if we take a look at verses one through three, this is where the author kind of starts out by saying things like, let the transgressions of my people be made public and let their sins be known unto them. Yes, their desire to keep the commandments is genuine, but their actions are misplaced. And so if we take a look at fasting, for example, when the people fast, they cry unto God saying, "We have fasted, have you not noticed? We have afflicted ourselves like you commanded, and yet you do not acknowledge us." But while these people think that their righteous actions are an act of worshiping God, we find out at the end of these verse we find out at the end of verse 3 that instead these people are taking pleasure in not doing work, not because the work is left for the day, but because the work is placed on the shoulders of others. The text says things like, in the day of your fast, you find pleasure and exact all your labors. And the footnote here for the word exact defines the word as inflicting travail on others. Then if we move on to verses 4 and 5, the critique of this attitude toward fasting continues, and it starts to point out that this kind of fast is not for godly reasons, but for strife and debate or It's a fast without spiritual motivation, which engenders discomfort and irritability among the people. And it's a fast to smite others with the fist of wickedness. These are all like phrases pulled from the text. And the footnotes of this verse specifically name hypocrisy as a theme for these verses. In verse 5, God directly asks, Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Have I appointed a day for man to afflict his soul? To bow down his head and cover himself with sackcloth and ashes? You call this a fast and deem it acceptable to God? Like, God is really calling the people out right here.
1: Yeah, God is not not happy at all with what's happening. So then as we move into verses 6 and 7, we hear God giving clear direction to God's people about what kind of fast is the kind that God has envisioned. We hear things like, is this not the fast that I have chosen? To loose the bands of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, and to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? God basically is like, this is, this is actually what I'm asking for. In verse 7, God continues saying, Is not my fast to deal thy bread to the hungry, that you bring the poor into your house and clothe the naked? So we get a really vivid picture here of what exactly it is that God is asking for when he asks his people to fast. In verses eight through nine, we kind of get this whole like, hey, if you, if you fast in this way, here are some of the things that you can expect. The verse explicitly states that in that case, a couple of things are going to happen. Thine health shall spring forth speedily. Thy righteousness shall go before thee. The glory of God shall be your reward. And when you call, God will answer. You won't have to wonder or ask like, hey, God, we're doing all these things. Where are you at? Because you'll get your answer. The Lord will guide you continually and God will satisfy your soul in drought. And finally, oh, I just love the way that these verses are written. This is at the end of verse nine. You will be called the repairer of the breach and the restorer of paths to dwell in. So if we move on to verses 13 and 14, we kind of get like a in summary, if you rid your fasting practice or your religious or worship practice of hypocrisy and continue according to the Lord's chosen pathway, which is feeding the hungry, clothing the naked and housing the poor and liberating the oppressed, then and only then the text says, quote, thou shalt delight in the Lord. And honestly, for us, this chapter is pretty self-explanatory, and it definitely creates a new context around fasting that really resonates strongly, especially with the teachings of Jesus that we find in the New Testament. This chapter in Isaiah argues that fasting is not about being hungry or going without, but rather about sharing abundance and restoring life via pathways of justice. This type of fasting is wealth redistribution. It's about economic justice, food justice, about the availability of healthcare and affordable housing. And it's about rest and creating space for others to rest as a restorative practice. So chapter 58 really is like such a beautiful, it's not even a call out, right? Like it's, God is basically saying like, hey, here are some of the things that I'm noticing are not quite right. But instead of being like, and now I'm going to destroy you because your worship practice is horrible. God, instead is saying, okay, I'm going to call you in and I'm going to show you, here is actually how I want it to be done. Here are the steps that need to be taken differently. And then we all get to experience this really beautiful coming together and this really beautiful example of restorative justice in chapter 58. So we were really excited to read this chapter this week and found it just like something that we could really get excited about.
0: Yes, absolutely. And I think this kind of theme can carry over to chapter 60, which is a chapter that really rejoices in gathering all of the people that have been dispersed, like gathering them into the fold or gathering them to Zion. And one of the things I found really interesting is that in my research, I learned that there are three different sections of Isaiah that may also be understood as three different authors of Isaiah. Mm-hmm. And each of these sections also has their own song. Like the entire chapter is, of scripture is, is set to music. And Isaiah chapter 60 is considered to be the third song of Isaiah. And you can find the third song of Isaiah on YouTube or s- Spotify, where you can actually sing the chapter in praise and worship of God. Oh, this cool. is the chapter that starts, arise, shine, for thy light is come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon me. So it's very like praiseworthy and worship filled. And I thought it was a cool practice that I had never heard of, like sing- singing scriptures or particular chapters set to songs. That's so beautiful. And honestly,
1: I am not surprised to hear that at all because chapter 60 is so like well written. It's so poetic in the way that the words flow throughout the chapter and all of the really vivid imagery of, you know, restoration and beauty that arrived to, you know, Zion during this chapter. And we can also kind of read chapter 60 as like a envisioning of a restoration of Zion or utopia. Um, if we read the chapter heading for this, if we read the chapter heading, it says, quote, in the last days, Israel shall rise again as a mighty nation. The Gentile people shall join and serve Israel and they will dwell in celestial splendor, end quote. And just to like really kind of drive home just the beauty and poeticism of this chapter, some of the highlights that we come across are in verses one through five, we hear We hear that in the last days, darkness will cover the world, but Israel will be covered with the light of God's glory so that all nations come unto them. In verses 6 through 15, we hear flocks of camels and sheep and ships laden with silver and gold will come to Israel and kings will come to serve them And and beautiful wood will cover their homes and the sons of their oppressors will bend their knee before them. In verses 16, we hear kings and Gentiles shall feed and nurture Israel, and by this they will know that I am God. In verses, 7 through, in verses 17 through 18, I just love these. They're so beautiful. It says, quote, "...in exchange for your brass, I will give you gold, and for wood, brass, and for stones, iron. I will make thy officers peace and thine, exact- and thine exactors righteousness." Violence within your walls will be no more, but you will call your walls salvation and your gates praise. And then in 19 through 20, we kind of get this really beautiful, like, summation of uh, of what's going to happen in this, like, utopia Zion vision. And we hear the text say, quote, the sun will be no more and neither will be the moon for God will be your everlasting light. So it's just this really big focus on the contrast between light and darkness, the movement from oppression to I don't I don't know, I wouldn't say like liberation, but kind of like oppression to freedom and um, the unification of God's people together under the protection of God. So it's just a really beautiful
0: chapter. And yeah,
1: I'm so glad that you found, I can't believe that there are like songs written out that we can listen to these
0: chapters for. That's so cool. Yeah, it is really cool. And I'm glad that you noticed this kind of restore, like restoration of Israel. And I think that that ties really nicely into Isaiah 61, which I my little section header for this was like, God's dream for humanity. <laughs> so on the same line of like, God kind of sketching what they hope things could look like. And I think sometimes we think that we can get to a better, more like loving and joyous world simply through individual efforts or by like working within the frameworks and institutions that we have already been given. But I really appreciate chapter 61 because it seems to sketch God's desire for humanity. And while there are some really tender, beautiful moments, it's not without destruction and revolution and justice. And so some of the things that I was noticing in chapter 61 first would be institutional destruction and revolution, not reform. This chapter talks about proclaiming liberty to the captives and opening the prisons to them that are bound. And both of these items deal with the institution of the prison industrial complex, but I also think that these could be extended to systems, to any system that holds us captive, like The system of capitalism that holds us captive to labor, exploitation, paychecks, and poverty. Another example could be the system of white supremacy that holds us captive to racism at varying levels of severity, violence, and consequence. And remember, reform aims at improving the status quo by modifying laws, policies, and practices, whereas true revolution aims at completely overthrowing the status quo. And I really think that God's dream for humanity is about revolution, which involves destruction of institutions and true liberation. The next theme that we see for God's dream for humanity is God wants to replace pain with comfort and beauty. God says that we should be comforting all those that mourn. God says, give them beauty instead of ashes. Give them oil of joy instead of mourning. Give them the garment of praise instead of the spirit of heaviness. So we have this kind of swap, or, yeah, like swapping in and out of pain and grief and sorrow for comfort and beauty and joy, which I think is a really nice image. And then finally, we have the kind of third, I don't know if it's a phase necessarily, but the third theme I noticed was a desire for community repair and community care, the vert. The chapter talks about repairing wasted and desolate cities. We see strangers feeding one another's flocks on their own will. And God asks us to bind the brokenhearted. And each of these three examples to me sound like, how can we band together as a community to take care of one another on both individual levels, like, you know, taking care of each other's hearts, but also helping each other in our daily labor, like, feeding each other's flocks and caring for each other's families and also repairing cities that have gone through destruction. Finally, in verse 10, just the first part of this verse, I think, is a really nice praise of God here, the God that shows up in chapter 60, the God that shows up in chapter 61. Verse 10 says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. And I'm thinking to myself, like, I want my soul to be joyful in my God (laughs) if this is what God wants from me. Like, you know, revolution, not reform, replacing pain with comfort and beauty and then community care and repair. So those are some of the things that I noticed in chapter 61 and really appreciated.
1: Yeah, I feel really excited, especially about that third and final point, the community repair and care. And I almost kind of looking at it, I'm looking at it as like, kind of concentric circles or, like, layers of what it means to be in right relationship with others. And it can go either way, right? Like, if we start from the bottom of your list, which is binding the brokenhearted, Mm -hmm. like, these are our, like, highly intimate, like, interpersonal relationships where we can really hold one another's hearts and, like, say, like, Okay, do you need a band-aid here? I have like mm-hmm. a whole first aid kit like ready for you and I know exactly what you need and I can do this for you. And those like really intimate interpersonal relationships are so are so special because they, they meet a very specific and unique kind of need. And then if we kind of like, if we imagine that as being like the very first, like closest circle with like only our closest, like beloved ones there, if we kind of like widen out into the next circle, then we see strangers feeding one another's flocks. And this could kind of be like, okay, I, you know, there could be a million examples of this. Like if we take the feeding metaphor literally, like, okay, hey, like I'm noticing that, My visiting teaching person like doesn't have a lot of food in their cupboards. I'm just like imagining Mm -hmm. a situation and we like gather together like extra from our pantry and in our ward to like send to that person's house or we donate to our food banks or we notice our neighbor's lawn needs to be mowed and we're already out here with our lawn mowers, or like we're shoveling the sidewalks of snow. Like it's kind of widening out from that very like intimate circle into our immediate community in our like neighborhood or our word boundaries or however we're defining like our lar- larger local community. And we're tr- finding smaller ways to serve one another, even if it doesn't mean that we're in that like really close, tight knit, intimate relationship. And then if we go even wider, we're repairing wasted and desolate cities. So these are like our broad, like very big communities, um, global communities, national communities, even like state or like bigger than your city, uh, local communities and finding ways to restore or yeah, restore or revolutionize mm-hmm. broken systems and things within that community that are harmful or that are otherwise ineffective. And like each one of these concentric circles needs attention. Each one of these needs people and people to be with. And they're all a vital part of what it means to come together in a really healthy community. And you can't like, I mean, you can ignore some, but in a truly healthy community, every single circle is going to have people working within them to restore something. So I actually view this as like a really hopeful way to look at um, social justice movements and restorative justice movements, recognizing that needs are different depending on what circle we're in, um, but that everyone is needed somewhere. So mm-hmm. I, I'm actually like really excited about, um, yeah, this example that you gave to us.
0: Yeah, thank you. I, and I really appreciate you like pulling these examples and putting them in more contemporary terms or like taking taking a look at more modern examples. Mm -hmm. I think the last chapter that we do want to talk about is Isaiah 66, which is the final chapter in the book of Isaiah. And the thing that stuck out to both Channing and I are these kind of mothering images of God that show up in verses seven through 13. And these verses contain mothering images, both of which involve a mother comforting a distressed child And God promises to, like, nurse and carry their child on their side and will offer their breasts for feeding and consolation. And we have this kind of metaphor for God birthing and breastfeeding Israel, like caring for Israel as a little child. And there's an article that we found by Leslie G. Woods titled Maternal Images of God. And in this article, Woods writes... Quote, what a comforting yet alarming feeling it is to have a creature so thoroughly dependent upon its mother for life, for safety, and for sustenance. And yet this is not daunting to Yahweh. Yahweh will dandle, bounce, and play with her little child on her knees. Yahweh will strap her child to her side using a piece of cloth or a basket so that the little one will be constantly with her throughout the day to be cared for in the midst of her work, end quote. I love that image
1: that that quote provides. We also get to see that
0: this isn't the only maternal
1: image of God that we see show up in the book of Isaiah. In chapter 42, verses 13 through 17, we hear of a God who is in labor, quote, Like a woman in labor, I will groan, I will pant, and I will gasp altogether, end quote. In chapter 46, verses 3 through 4, God sustains Israel in their womb, saying, quote, Listen to me, house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel, who has been carried from my womb, who has been sustained from my womb. And until old age, I am he. And until gray hair, I will bear a heavy load. I have done, and I will carry, and I will bear a heavy load, and I will deliver you, end quote. And finally, in chapter 49, verses 14 through 18, we hear the Lord ask, quote, Can a woman forget her suckling child, that she should not have compassion on the son of her womb? Yea, they may forget, yet I will not forget thee, end quote.
0: Yeah, and so this theme of maternal images of God, I think, is really interesting to track how God shows up as a mother throughout these different chapters. And we think a couple of things might be going on here. Like first, for those of you who are looking for maternal images of God, I imagine that these would be quite comforting to find so many of them here in the book of Isaiah. And also I think that there's some really cool gender fluidity and expansion going on in these chapters because God easily flows from masculine or paternal imagery to feminine and maternal imagery without any hesitation. I think we see this quite acutely in chapter 46, verses 3 and 4, where God talks about carrying children in his womb, while in the same verse talking about I am he. And this is also really noteworthy and suggestive of God as a trans man. And I was talking with our friend Kate, um, who's on Instagram as Latter-day Les, and we were talking about these verses and they were saying things like, look at how interesting it is that we read these verses and we can say like, Oh, this, this sounds like some, a God who's a trans man. And Kate was saying things like, yeah, but remember like these constructs of gender and sexuality and bodies weren't in place when the scriptures were written. And so to be able to have language to articulate what we think is going on here or how we think God's body or God's gender might be understood here, is a very like, contemporary 21st century interpretation of what's going on Mm -hmm. in these scriptures and it's also i think an equally valid interpretation to recognize that like one these could be poetic metaphors for god that are still quite meaningful and two maybe understandings of god and men and women and wombs and birthing like expanded in ways that we don't understand nor are we ready to accept in the 21st century I also love thinking about mothering as a, a more expansive concept that includes many people and thinking about mother as a title that can be chosen by anyone who cares for children and who wants to parent them. And this idea, I'm sure I've said it before on the podcast, this comes from Marge Piercy, who's an author, and, and she's really helped me think, think about this idea of co-mothers, which is like a voluntary role chosen by those who desire to parent and not just by those who can birth children. And in this way, the title of mother or co-mother can be applied to anyone regardless oh Yeah. And in this way, the title of mother can be applied to anyone, regardless of sex or gender or ability to actually give birth or not give birth to children.
1: Does that come from uh, the book Woman on the Edge of Time?
0: Yes. I'm of course favorite. it does. <laughs> <laughs> like, Elise, I remember Elise
1: came to visit me one time and on the entire drive home from the airport, she was telling me about this book. And honestly, I haven't read it yet, but I'm like so infatuated with a lot of the ideas that were presented there. And like, I'm really glad that you brought this mother piece up because that felt like such a like liberating way to look at motherhood. So essentially, correct me if I'm wrong about this, Elise, but but essentially in the book what happens is when a child come like when a child comes to earth it has like this child has three mothers and the mothers can be any gender and the mothers are like they share They they share all the responsibilities of raising this child, but there are three of them. And they get to share in the workload and share in the mental workload and the emotional workload and the physical workload. And they can choose it as it's. As, like, an actual career, like their life's work that they do, mm-hmm. devoting their lives to this child. And it's seen as, like, a highly respected and valuable role in the community. And then, it, but it's not forever. Like, once the child reaches, like, 12 or 13 or 14 or something like that, then they like their mothering job stops. They're no longer a mother, and the child becomes more independent and is cared for. Is it just by one auntie, or is it I by like many aunties?
0: Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. And so it's just this really like beautiful reimagining of like a parent-child dynamic and a caretaker role. Um, that's really really
0: radical. So I'm glad that you brought it up here because literally every time you talk about the book, I'm like seriously amazing. <laughs> so good, and yeah. Yeah, that's a really nice summary. And the, I think one of the things that is the most like radical and that people might feel the most uncomfortable by is that, so in the book, they're creating this type of utopian world, which meant that they had to dissolve all systems of power and hierarchy. And one of the last systems that they had to dissolve was the system where only some people can give birth to children over others because they were worried that that's still a power that people have over others. And so mm. they've actually like, I don't really know all of the details, but, like, no one physically gives birth. Interesting. Babies are, like, made in a – not, like, a lab, but the but babies kind – of. Yeah, but kind of. So you don't actually birth children, and no one has power over other people to say, like, well, I'm a I'm a real woman or I'm a real mom because mm. I can give birth to kids and you can't. And so it was just another move to try and, like – yeah, dissolve the power structure of birthing.
1: So basically, if you are a fan of Star Wars, marge Piercey is envisioning the like creation of clones. <laughs> sure, <laughs> I've never if seen Star Wars, so I can, Star Wars, yeah. can't
0: believe that. But yeah. anyway, for those of you who
1: have watched Star Wars, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs>
0: Um, Okay, so maybe just to kind of wrap things up, I think either way, like recognizing that the book of Isaiah comes to a close with these mothering images feels quite significant and perhaps healing for those who have strained relationships with their own mothers or parents or for those who want to think about an expanded understanding of parenthood, motherhood, and also gender.
1: Oh, so beautiful. We're so like... I know we didn't get to spend all of the chapters in Isaiah because of our self-care break, um, but I do, <laughs> I remember one time Elise was like, I thought you mentioned one time that Isaiah is like one of your favorite books. And I'm like, oh, did I, did I say that? <laughs> I'm, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if I did, but like even spending just the last two weeks in this book, I am reminded just of like the really strong poeticism and the beautiful images that come out of the writings of Isaiah. And I'm so grateful that even though we didn't get to spend the whole book together um, that we got to spend these last few weeks, and I really am just so happy that yeah we got to explore the treasures and the gifts that are waiting here for us. So, friends, take super super good care. Next week we start in the book of Jeremiah, so whole new chap like whole new book, whole new context, whole new everything, um, and we're looking forward to diving in with you. So until next week, bye
0: bye. Friends, thank you so much for joining us today for another episode of the Faithful Feminist Podcast. We know your time and space is sacred and we are so grateful to have spent ours with you. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd be so happy if you left us a loving rating on iTunes and Spotify so other seekers can find us. Financial donations
1: support the many hours of research, work, and devotion to each episode, as well as the everyday costs of creating and publishing the podcast. You can support us on Patreon or through a simple Venmo donation and help us create a world where creators, artists, activists, and beauty makers are valued and paid for their labor. Find us on those platforms and on Instagram as The Faithful Feminists. We are deeply grateful for your kindness and encouragement. We love you so much, and we hope to spend more time with you again soon. Bye, friends.